I want to share the word with you this morning, and the title of this morning's message is Critical Identity. Critical Identity. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at a little bit later is, is found in Hebrews. Thank you, Jason, for bringing us to Hebrews chapter 7. That was not planned. We're actually going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, but as it turns out, the entire book of Hebrews is the backdrop for the message today. The book of Hebrews can be summarized as a demonstration of how Jesus is greater than any of the forerunners that pointed towards Messiah. That's, that's the crux of the story of the book of Hebrews. And the reason for that is because we as believers need to look to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. We need to refocus and look to Jesus. So I'm going to give you a summary point right now that just summarizes the entire sermon. After this, you can go get your sandwich. But I'll fill it out with some more details for those of you who are interested in hearing more. This morning's key statement is we need to stop looking for our own identity and we need to begin to focus on his identity. This week I was surprised by a Facebook post. Uh, it turns out I, I waste a lot of time, maybe not a lot of time, but too much time, a lot more time than I want to, uh, scrolling through Facebook feeds. Anybody identify with that? It's not, it's, not a, it's not a thing that, you know, it's not a massive problem that takes hours and hours and hours out of my day. It's just that whenever I sit down, one of the automatic things I do now is sit down and look at the phone. Did I get a message? Is there anything on Facebook? Do I need to know anything? And immediately I scroll through. It's just, it's just that thing. You get out of bed in the morning, you reach for your phone. So I leave the phone downstairs now, so I can't reach for the phone first thing in the morning, right? <laughs> Then I walk downstairs and I go downstairs and I used to go downstairs and just, you know, maybe sit down, talk to the Lord a little bit. Uh, then I started going downstairs and turning on the kettle so I could get my coffee ready. And then I started going downstairs and pick up the phone before I turn on the kettle. It's usually better to turn the kettle on first before you put on the phone because you might get stuck with the phone and then forget the kettle anyway. Long story short, no. <laughs> long story short, I waste moments, precious moments. Scrolling through. Well, anyway, I happened to be scrolling through Facebook, and I came across a post in which somebody was, somebody was making a statement about, about taking responsibility for your own life. And they made, somewhere in this little meme was, nobody's coming to save you. Nobody's coming to rescue you. Nobody's coming to marry you. Nobody is coming to pick you up out of the, out of the doldrums. It is your responsibility. It is your life. Get yourself together. You don't need anybody's permission except your own. And I saw that post and I saw a few friends who liked it because obviously they are hurt, hurt by people who disappointed them. But I saw that post and I thought that is absolutely not the gospel. You know what the gospel says? He will come and save you. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says you are loved and he has sought you out. He will leave the 99 and come seeking after the one. There is somebody coming to save you. And I just looked at this and I thought, how quickly we can get caught up in this crazy, mixed up world of finding or making or seizing our own identity. And I wanted to talk about women and their identity today because, of course, it's Mother's Day and I wanted to focus on, uh, on some real positive things about women. But it occurred to me that women have a lot of challenges. 
this week, I had a phone call from a, a couple that were that were struggling with uh, with honesty, and uh, she wanted to uh, to look at his phone. She wanted access to his phone to see what he's been looking at, and he was like, "It's my phone. It's it's my private place. So that is a violation of my privacy." And so they called me and they said, "Is that okay?" And I said, "Well, actually, no. I happen to be with the wife on this one. There is no." This is my phone. You can't look at my phone in a true godly marriage. There is no, this is my closet and you can't look in it. There's no, this is my secret place where I hide my secret sins and you can't look in there. Not for any of us, men or women. As it turns out, women suffer a lot. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of abuse. We recognize that. We know that women, uh, also struggle a lot with, with identity. Women struggle with getting older. I mean, men do too, but I'm just talking about women right now. Women will struggle with beauty and oh, who, who recognizes their beauty? Are they beautiful? Are they not beautiful? Who says that they are? Do they feel beautiful? For those who consider themselves beautiful, they, they, they become afraid of aging because the one thing they do have is slipping through their fingers. Women struggle with, with their place. There's a lot of inequalities. We know that. We know that the world is fighting against that. We know that certainly here in the United States and, and in Europe and, and, and in Western countries, women have fought for liberties and for equality. We know that that is a struggle. We certainly know that there are struggles for men as well in all these areas. We, we recognize that, but women struggle more so than others. And I thought, what if we were to list all the ways in which women struggle so we could honor the fight, the, uh, the real life struggles of women and say, how can we make it better? How can we, as, as a community of faith, how can we men look to the struggles of women and come alongside them and be helpers for them as they are for us? And so I thought, what if, we could, what if we could go through and just sort of list off a current day, 21st century list of, of the struggles that women go through? But as I was trying to compile this list, it occurred to me that that wouldn't carry any clout. Because the Bible actually lists a whole bunch of struggles that women have gone through from the very beginning of time until now. And as it turns out, the 21st century uh, isn't any different from really any other century that's ever been. The struggles remain the same. And even though cultural differences happen and, and, and geographic differences and, and value systems change, the truth is the struggles are actually very, very current. They're very real. And in case you don't think so, I want to list off 20 women in the Bible who had to go through significant struggles in their life. Here's, here, they're not listed in order of appearance in the Bible. They're just listed in order of appearance in my brain as I was writing down the list. So <laughs> let's, let's think of a few of them. Here they are. Leah. Leah was unloved. And she was constantly striving to gain the love of, a, of her husband. You know the story of Leah. I don't have to elaborate for you, but she was unloved. Any woman ever feel unloved? Gentlemen, it's important for us to recognize that women often feel unloved. Unloved, constantly striving to gain the affection. How about Rachel, her sister, married to the same guy? That's weird. Uh, of course, that is a long time ago, and it's not current in our culture, but for two sisters to be married to the same guy, I can't imagine that was ever okay. Uh, I mean, you know, deep down, emotionally, that's kind of weird, even if a culture accepted it. But still, Rachel, she was the loved one, but she actually didn't have any children. She was barren. That's a horrible word. 
It's a horrible word. And especially in that culture, you're right, Dan, so barren. She was barren. She didn't have any children. And so she, even though she was loved, she, she couldn't produce. And she felt insufficient, unable. And she looked at her sister and she compared herself constantly with her sister. Comparison. She struggled with comparison. She also had a very controlling father. Did you notice that? She was supposed to be married. The next day, it wasn't her in the marriage bed. It was her sister. That's a pretty controlling father, don't you think? Messed up her whole wedding plan. Wow. She was also sick. And she died young, giving birth. How about Sarah? Sarah was old. Sarah was old. She was beautiful, but she was old. And then there was another young thing that came along. And she thought, well, this is a good idea. Let's give her to my husband so he can have a child with her and call that child mine. That's also, culturally, it was totally acceptable. And culturally, it was fine. But for us, as we look back now, I thank God we don't do that anymore, right? But that was, that was, she had to struggle. She had to struggle with her age, the fact that she hadn't ever been able to bear a son for the man that she loved. And she was jealous. She had to deal with jealousy. And she had to deal with this other young woman that came into her life and even though it was organized and it was agreed upon, it turned into a, a, a relational nightmare. Any woman ever had a relational nightmare? How about Hagar, the one who was responsible for this relational nightmare? Although she wasn't really responsible, was she? I mean, think about it. She was discriminated against because she was a slave, for one. She, she was discriminated against by her wealthy owner, and, uh, and she, her status in life was, was, was not her own. She, she didn't have the right to, to choose where she lived. She had to do whatever she was told. Any woman ever feel that she's been discriminated against? How about Hannah? Hannah's another one. Hannah was mocked. She was misunderstood by the clergy. Any woman ever been misunderstood by the righteous elite? Ever been misunderstood by the clergy and spoken ill of by the clergy. I think that that's a very specific thing, but it has happened to a lot of people, actually. Maybe even been abused by the clergy or taken advantage of. Women who, who in all purity and honesty seek the Lord and then, some, and then some person in authority takes advantage of them. That's a challenge that happens to women. Maybe not a lot of women in this church, but it has certainly happened all over the world. We see large churches that are falling apart right now because their leaders have been unrighteous towards women who probably started out just with a pure heart towards God and then were taken advantage of. And that was Hannah. She was misunderstood. The priest thought she was drunk and she was just crying out to God. How about Tamar? There's two of them in the Bible. I'm thinking about the one with Judah. She was widowed twice. And then the responsibility of, of her, of her father-in-law at that time was to raise up for her another son for her to marry and to make sure that, that, the, that, that, the, that the line was continued, that the, the heritage was continued. She, the status of women in those days was so, so in flux. As long as she was married, she was fine. But the moment she's not married anymore, she's, she's worthless. Anybody ever feel that they're that their marital status is the only thing that gives them identity. She had to resort to desperate measures because she actually believed where her father-in-law didn't believe. She actually believed that there was a promise of God and a call of God upon the line of Judah. 
so that the lion of Judah would come from the lion of Judah. So she resorted to desperate measures. That's not a really good story, is it? How about Naomi? Naomi was widowed and she was destitute. She was far away from her home and she was alone. And she had daughters-in-law to deal with. Any woman ever struggle with that? Ever have trouble with that? Any woman ever lose her husband and both her sons? What a tragedy. And then to be destitute on top of it. It's likely that Naomi and Eli Melech were actually local aristocracy in Bethlehem. It's likely because when she returned to Bethlehem later, Naomi was welcomed by all the women. Is this Naomi? Has she returned? As if she was actually a celebrity. If she was just some woman from the, you know, just a no-name who just left, nobody would care that she came back. But the fact that she came back empty-handed suggests that she was some sort of aristocracy who went off and then returned to absolutely nothing, to poverty. So the story takes on a whole other level at that point. She struggled, didn't she? Here's a woman who struggled. How about Ruth? Ruth was an immigrant, and she was vulnerable to abuse. She could have been taken advantage by, of by anybody. She went to work in the fields and put herself at great risk because in those days, a young woman unprotected, without a man to speak for her, she was fair game. And at harvest time, with a whole bunch of young men who were working themselves, to, working themselves silly out in the field, here's a pretty young girl who comes along, and I don't know. Her, mother, her mother-in-law warned her against it and said, you know, anybody could take care of you. Uh, anybody could take advantage of you in that situation, so try and stay close I don't know, keep your wits about you and stay close to the decent guys. Any woman ever struggle being an immigrant, coming to a new land, attaching yourself to a family, but what's your identity? Where do you fit? How about Deborah? Deborah, the great warrior leader, the woman who stirred up uh, Barak to take a stand against the enemies of Israel. Here she was, a great woman, well, well loved, but she was limited by her by gender inequality. You ever find any inequalities in your life, ladies? Ever find struggle with gender inequality that you just can't take a certain job because it's only a man's world? Man has to take that job. Ever struggle with that? Look at how full the Bible is of current issues. These are ancient issues, not just current issues. How about uh, Noah's wife? Anybody remember Noah's wife? No, you don't. You know why? Because she's totally invisible. Any woman in the church feel invisible? Struggle with your identity because you're invisible. Nobody sees you. Nobody knows you. You've just saved the whole world and nobody even knows your name. You are literally the mother of all living people. And nobody knows your name. Oh, they know your husband, who builds himself a vineyard and gets drunk as the first thing that he does after he gets off of the the salvation ship. And what happens to you? Completely invisible. Ever struggle with that identity? How about Rebecca? Rebecca had a son that her husband didn't really like, so she overprotected him. 
Rebecca had two sons. <laughs> she had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was loved by his dad because he was an outdoors guy. He was a huntsman. He's the kind of man's man that Isaac wanted him to be. Just the right kind of guy. Jacob, however, was a smooth man, not really rough on the outside. He had soft hands. He worked in the kitchen. Yep. Stuck around with his mom, close to her apron strings. But the promise of God was on his life, and she had to somehow bring that to fruition because she had a husband who was blind to all things spiritual, it seems. A man of faith, a man who was even willing to lay down his life when his father took him up a mountain to sacrifice him to God. So you can't fault Isaac on his spiritual devotion, but somehow in his parenting, he, he missed the memo. And he loved his son Esau so much that he was going to pass on to him the promise of God, even though God had made it abundantly clear from the time of his birth that Jacob was the one that he was choosing. But he didn't want that because it didn't fit his model. Any mom here ever had to protect the child because dad didn't believe in him? You ever struggle with that identity, ladies? Imagine how many fights Isaac and Rebecca would have had. Does any couple here ever fight about how the kids are treated? Of course you do. Of course you do. How about Abigail? Abigail was married to a drunkard and a fool. His very name meant fool. Any woman here been married to a fool? Abigail had to live out her righteousness and make wise decisions in spite of her husband's foolishness and his addictions. And she remained steadfast and faithful to the Lord, but her identity, who, who was she? Abigail. And then if it wasn't bad enough, her husband died, the king married her, and then the king went and had an affair. This poor girl just couldn't get it right. She did all things righteous, and she ended up holding the bag. Her son doesn't get to be king. You ever struggle with identity like that? Your marriage. Unfaithfulness. How about Esther? She had to hide her ethnicity and her faith. And her name. Esther's not actually her name. Her name is Adassa. She had to live under a fake name. Because of her ethnicity. You ever feel like you're living out a false identity because you can't show your true faith? How about Manoah's wife? Manoah. Who is Manoah? Do you even remember who Manoah was? Samson's father. Yeah. She's the first one, by the way, who sees the angel who comes and says, you're, you're going to have a son, and your son must be a Nazarite. So between now and the time forever, you, you're not allowed to drink anything or have any, you know, no alcohol or anything. So she, she's, she's got to live her life in such a way as to raise a son who's going to carry the spirit of the Lord and the, and the gift of God and, 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 the, and the grace of God to an entire nation. So she devotes herself fully. She and her husband raising their son 
in all the right ways. And then guess what? Their son completely disregards them, disrespects them, and even goes so far as to defile them because he kills a lion, which then makes him unclean. Well, the, the dead lion carcass is unclean, and he goes and he finds honey in that carcass, and he takes the honey out of that carcass, defiling himself as a Nazarite and defiling himself as a Jew. And then he takes that honey and gives it to his parents, knowing that it's going to defile them too, and keeps it a secret and secretly chuckles in his heart because now his Faithful parents have been defiled and they don't even know it. Manoah's wife, who dedicated herself to doing things the right way and raising her children the right way and gets slapped in the face by her son, who, by the way, carries the gift of God, still carries the gift of God, but completely abuses it. It's quite a struggle, isn't it? Okay, how about Zipporah? Moses' wife, you ever think about her? She was forced into her husband's mission against her will. Don't you remember the story? She didn't want to go. She didn't want her children circumcised. She didn't want to be any part of that. Moses is like, I'm going in the name of the Lord to set his people free. And she's like, no, you're not. No. <laughs> well, you can go, but I'm not going with you. And God, God twists her arm right up her back and says, really, Zipporah? I want to set my people free, and Moses is my chosen man. And she's like, I don't want any part of that. And God says, okay, well, then I'll just take your husband home. And she has to break her will. She has to have her will broken before God to the point where she circumcises her children and throws the circumcision on Moses' feet and says, look now, he is a husband of blood. I've made my covenant with you, God, against my will. You ever feel like you're trapped in your husband's mission? How about Job's wife? Are you guys done with this yet? I've only got three or four left to go. How about Job's wife? She's robbed of all of her children in one fell swoop. You ever have grief? What's your identity? I mean, isn't a mom's identity to be a mom? Not just one child, ten children gone like that in a single disaster. Her entire identity stripped. She's robbed of all of her children. She's robbed of her home. She's robbed of her status. She's robbed of her courage. And all because her husband is a righteous man. And the devil wanted to pick a fight. There's no rhyme, no reason. And she's ready to abandon her faith. Curse God and die, she says to her husband. How about Ezekiel's wife? What was her challenge? <laughs> Would you want to be married to Ezekiel? I'm just saying. How about Bathsheba? She's known by her sins, not by her sons. How about Rahab? She had to resort to prostitution to survive in a hostile world. I don't think she was a natural native of Jericho. She probably ended up there as an immigrant of some sort, came to the big city, and the only way she could survive was to prostitute herself. That's why she ended up with a home in the wall. Closest... Thing, the first thing that's going to get attacked, if, the, if there's a siege works against the wall, her home's going to be the first thing to fall. She's the, she's the outcast of the society. They know exactly who she is. And she's had to do that. Did you ever meet anybody who actually literally had to prostitute themselves in order to survive? Because it happens. 
even in our own community. I want you to know all of these women, they had real, real challenges. And their identity needed to be in something far greater than themselves. Their real life stories are told to us because they're there to teach us. They're there to teach us many beautiful, powerful lessons. I had one more, and that was the, video, the widow of Zarephath, whose economic disaster was followed by the death of her son. You know, she was the one that Elijah went to. and She was gathering sticks, and Elijah said, Hey, can you give me some food? And she's like, Well, I've got enough food for me and my son. We're going to make a cake, and then we're going to eat it and die because we're done. And he says, Oh, that's great. How about you give it to me first? So she does, and God provides for her, and then all of a sudden her son ups and dies. Where's the, where's the God who's supposed to be watching over them? In all of these stories, these women could have said, we are utterly abandoned by God. There is no God. All these women with their challenges could have said, God doesn't care. God doesn't know. God doesn't believe in me. God, God, why should I believe in a God who abandons me to all of this? And yet the stories in the Bible demonstrate to us something far greater. Here's some of the lessons that we learned from these women. Number one, God sees every single one of them. God sees every single one of them. There's not one of them that was invisible. Even Noah's wife is not invisible to God. Every one of those women was not only visible to God, but he was intimately acquainted with their ways and he loved every single one of them. Here's where we see the tapestry of God's story of salvation is actually made beautiful and relevant by their lives. The rawness, the raw emotions, the raw challenge, the raw courage, the raw faith, the raw testing, everything makes the story of salvation beautiful and relevant. Here's another thing we learned. Not one of them is disqualified by their trials. Rahab's not disqualified because the trial that she had to overcome by becoming a prostitute in a city did not actually define her. That wasn't her identity. Her identity was not Rahab the prostitute, although that's how we remember her in the Bible. But she has a much greater identity than that. Of course, Rahab is one of those that you know because you've seen her name in the lineage of Christ. You've seen her name in the lineage of Christ, that God actually chose that woman who did what she had to do in order to survive. And God said, you know what? Regardless of your identity in the world, I want to give you an identity that's so much greater. None of them is disqualified by their trials. Here's another thing that we see, we learn from them. Redemption comes as faith endures. The faith endures and the redemption comes. Those who gave up didn't find the redemption. But every one of these women that I've read to you, every one of them, uh, th these names that I've listed off here, every one of them endured and every one of them received something from the Lord. And redemption ultimately is coming to all of them still. Here's another thing that I learned about them. No man in any of their stories actually qualified to be their redeemer. Boaz comes real close with Ruth, right? 
real close to being like a real redeemer. I mean, of all the characters in the Bible, Boaz is probably the best. Boaz has no sins that we, can, that we are aware of. Boaz is thoughtful. He's kind. He's generous. He, he's, he's in love. Boaz is everything we want a man to be. He's righteous. He's faithful. He's a great leader. He takes care. He takes notice of the underprivileged. And he recognizes responsibility and he steps up to it. He's so close. But even Boaz is not man enough. No man qualifies as a true redeemer. Because only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy the longings of a woman's heart. So the lesson that I want to say to you out of that particular point, ladies, is if you're looking to a man to be your redeemer, you need to change your focus. If you're looking for a man, whether it's your husband or your son or your father or a great leader, or some friend, if you're looking for that person to satisfy that need, that craving in your heart, I'm telling you now, you're looking in the wrong place. Every single one of the women in the Bible teaches us this lesson. Man cannot be your redeemer. Here's another one that I learned. There's only one child who truly was worthy of a mother's worship. Only one. And that was Jesus, the son of Mary. Only one son that's truly worthy of a woman's worship, a mother's worship. And by the way, even Mary had to give him up. I want to say that with all due respect to the mums in the house, I thank God for your motherly instinct and for your amazing passion and your commitment to raising a family. But I just want to say this to you. If you're looking to your sons, to give you identity, your sons or your daughters, if you're looking to your children to give you identity, I want you to know you will be disappointed because your children, like Samson, will have strengths and weaknesses. They are not worthy of your worship. Your husband may be a drunken fool, and you say, well, I'm okay with that as long as I have my sons and daughters. But your sons and daughters have strengths and weaknesses, and they are not Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying that a woman's true identity is not in belonging to a man or to a community. A woman's true identity is not in producing a child, being fruitful and multiplying. A woman's true identity a woman's true identity is not the issue. As it turns out, neither a woman's identity nor a man's identity is the real issue. The real issue is, who is Christ? Christ's identity must be settled once and for all. It's not who we are, but who he is that matters. The Bible is not about teaching people to find their identity. The Bible is about teaching people to see Christ. Yes. The Bible is about us recognizing that there is no other way through which we may be saved. But the natural course of life says, 
trust in this, trust in that, trust in status, trust in, 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 in offspring, trust in jobs, trust in money, trust in all these different things. But every one of them is a false God. That's what these stories teach us. They teach us that identity of the individual is irrelevant. It's Christ's identity that matters. And once Christ's identity has been established in the heart, then our identity comes into being because we are sons and daughters of the living God. Redeemed and restored. And one day we will be shown in our true identity before him. And we will be celebrated as the sons and daughters of God by all of creation. All creation is standing on its tiptoes, yearning to see the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. You will be revealed in your identity on that day when we stand before him. Until that day, stop caring about your own identity and pour yourself into revealing his identity. When we know who he is, it's in that place that we find immeasurable strength and fortitude to live out our own challenges to a redemptive end. You are challenged. Every one of the women in this house is challenged. Every one of the men in this, in this room has a challenge that you have to face. Many challenges that we will face in our lives. Every one of those challenges can have a redemptive end. But it's not going to be a redemptive end found in you expressing your identity. It's going to be a redemptive end when Christ's identity is revealed through you in the midst of your challenge. Hebrews. <laughs> Chapter 11. In verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, all their stories is not about their identity. They hadn't received it yet. They, they received some redemption in their story, but ultimately... They receive the same thing we do. Christ. Christ Jesus. Son of Mary. Son of David. Son of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
let us also lay aside every weight and sin. <laughs> it's not just your struggle for identity that bothers you, but sin comes right close behind that, which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is. Looking to Jesus. Whose identity needs to be established? Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is our healer. He is our soon and coming king. He is a gentle and peaceable ruler who rules with a rod of iron, subjecting his enemies under his feet. He is caring and compassionate. He knows our struggles and our trials. He has carried upon himself the weight of our sin. He is glorious. He is wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations. He is creative. He is fun. He laughs. He dances. He turns water into wine. He raises the needy up off of the ash heap and seats them with princes. He reaches to the underprivileged and gives them gifts that no man can scorn. Jesus is the lover of our souls, the one our hearts adore. He is worthy of our worship. My brothers and my sisters alike, let us no longer be sucked into the world's identity crisis. It is critical that we define Christ and who he is to us. He has been defined. The word tells us who he is. It is critical that we secure in our hearts his identity. And from there, my brothers, from there, my sisters, let us overcome what the world cannot. Let us overcome all these issues. May the Lord's grace be yours, I pray, here on this Mother's Day that you will stand firm. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we ask for your grace on us as we chew these words and let them nourish our spirit. We are not unique in our struggles, in our trials. Our trials have been shared by many. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us more than overcomers through Christ who loves us. May we no longer be identified by our struggles, but may we be identified by you. In Jesus' name, amen.